Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Vincent, I'm really excited to have you here on The Deep Dive. I feel like this has been a conversation long coming. I've been fortunate enough to have had conversations with you before, kind of offline, but we've never actually recorded something together. And I couldn't think of a better reason to having you on the show than to go deeper into the future of the responsible company. And and you're looking at at 50 years now of Patagonia's um, life as an entity. So welcome to the show. And I'll start off at the beginning, right? You've had a chance to reflect on Patagonia at 40 years. And now we're here a decade later. I don't know where the time goes, but here we are. A decade later, you're at 50 years. What in your mind prompted you to look back at the journey having covered this 10 years from 40 to 50 years? Uh, first of all, you know, it's great to be talking to you again. Thanks so much for reaching out and for looking at the book so closely. We're, you know, I think there are two reasons to update the book. And one is the world has changed. What we've seen in the last decade is climate change was something we anticipated and something that is here all around the world. People know this. Uh, plants don't grow at the same time. They don't get harvested at the same time. Everything is hotter, wetter, etc. We've lost more forms of life. We've lost more freshwater rivers. And at the same time that the climate crisis has become apparent, that decline of, of the web of life is starting to become apparent, we had some amazing things happen in the beginning of the decade, including the UN Sustainable Development Goals, in which 183 nations, whether they meant it or not, <laughs> signed a document that said, okay, this is what a good economy would look like all around the world, not just for dividing between rich and poor countries. We had the uh, Paris Climate Accord. And then following that, we had the election of Donald Trump. We had the spread of anti-democracy movements and anti-environmentalism and sort of a drawing away from locating ourselves in the natural world or kind of uh, turning our back on that. That You see that a lot in the tech companies of colonize Mars or what we really need to do is get rid of our bodies and become big brains or, or have our big brains superseded by AI. So there's a kind of craziness at work in the world. And at the same time, a lot of good things going on, a lot of hard realizations. And within the company, I think we really shifted in several ways. One is I think the culture, even as we, we, as we talked a decade ago, or as I wrote a decade ago, our company internally had maybe three different subcultures. You know, you had the product people who were go-getters. They, they came out of other companies that made things that they, they wanted to make the best product. They wanted to be 10 years ahead of the competitor. Um, you know, they had margin goals to meet, sales goals to meet. And then you had tree huggers, people within the company that were both giving grants and also working on trying to minimize our, the harm of our environmental impact through the supply chain. And then you had the bean counters who were 
uh, at budget time turning into Stasi and, you know, running around and saying, <laughs> justify this, you know. So we had the, and nobody ever won. <laughs> these three, <laughs> these three subcultures, they, they just kept going. And it's almost as though the company culture grew by capillary action. But at a certain point, and it wasn't much beyond the 10 year mark, everybody started to learn everybody else's language and to trust one another. So now if I'm an Alpine product developer at Patagonia, I know that I've got to do all the same stuff I did before, make the best possible product and stay ahead of the competition, meet my sales goals. But I'm also responsible if I have any products that are not made in a fair trade certified factory to get those dealt with. I know I'm responsible for getting rid of the durable water repellent that persists in the environment. And I own that. My team owns that. We're not looking to have somebody else slap our hand. Quick story. One of, I really loved this about the company, and I thought this is, a, this is a great moment for us. We always only had one distribution facility in North America in Reno. We outgrew that. And so we're, we've got ops, operations, and finance people traveling around with real estate agents in Tennessee and Pennsylvania looking for an East Coast spot. And they're being shown raw farmland. We're talking 300,000 square foot warehouse and land around it. And, you know, at the end of the day in the hotel room, our ops and our finance people, not a, not a single enviro among them, says, we can't do this. You know, this is wrong. And they ended up partnering in, with a, uh, an NGO in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, to build the DC on top of a reclaimed coal mine. So there are 22 layers of tunnels underneath our DC. And it was a disaster, an environmental disaster 60 years ago that wiped out the coal industry in this valley. So that heartened me that this was something the finance and the ops people put together on their own, just knowing that the point at which we had reached in the company, they could not tolerate either tearing down trees or digging up farmland to start the warehouse. Then the third thing I, I would just mention is that we also got into the food business. And for the first time, I think we understood that we could actually have a positive effect on the environment. Because if you adopt regenerative organic practices, which is not just staying away from the use of chemicals, but also crop rotation, uh, companion planting, uh, minimal tillage, you can actually build topsoil faster than nature does on its own. So this is one of the first instances where we were not just reducing harm, but actually doing positive environmental good. So in 2018, in recognition of both the intensification of the environmental crisis and this knowledge that we had this new North Star, that we could actually not only do positive good, but create products that solve environmental problems, solve problems in, the, in agriculture or in, in food supply. So we changed our mission statement, our purpose statement in 2018 to we're in business to save our home planet. And it's an immense simplification of the old purpose statement. And it's one that I, I'm, I'm very proud also of the company that these don't become plaques on the wall. This is something that everybody asks themselves, okay, what does this mean for my work? What does this mean for my team? How do we change what we do? And then most recently, we put the structure of the company in alignment with that purpose statement in which the, the Chouinard family, the four adult members of the family, 100% of the stock, they gave it all away to Patagonia Purpose Trust. 
which holds the stock and distributes what traditionally would be dividends, all of the dividends to uh, the Holdfast Collective, which gives it to environmental causes. You covered so much in just that very brief sort of synopsis of what's transpired in the, in the 10 years. And, you know, some of those things are sort of the big ticket items that sort of acted as shocks through our both our social, cultural, and economic spaces, right? You had Trump, you know, you have the pandemic, which I don't think was mentioned, but the pandemic was and is still here. You know, these are seismic shocks in all of our, our spheres of being. And then you also note the shifts that the company has made that are cultural shifts, they're business shifts, and they're also philosophical shifts. And you're the chief philosophical officer, right? So who better to sort of guide us through all those things? You know, when I was reading the book, what really struck me among many things, but what really stands out is the transparency that's within the stories and the anecdotes that's shared throughout the book. And, you know, transparency sometimes is one of those words it makes me wince, right? Because we we see so many organizations talk about transparency, right? So it's become, you know, a buzzword to a certain extent. But when you read it and you see the stories that you share, I feel a very accounting, a very honest accounting, very raw accounting because there's an admission that so many things that Patagonia is lauded for were not things that you necessarily thought were good ideas, right? Um, and Or you didn't go into them with the intention of saying, we're going to do this, right? But there's an evolutionary spirit in that transparency that I particularly find refreshing because... So often people, individuals and organizations have to be perfect at the formation, right? And life is not that way. You know, a lot of the views I, I've had at 18 and 20 and fuck it, 40, <laughs> I don't have anymore. A decade later, I'm on my, my own decade, right? And I'm sure some of the ideas I have now at 50, I'm not going to have. Hopefully I won't have them at 60, and 65, right? We should always be in a spirit of evolution. So the statement, we're in a business to save our home planet, you know, you highlighted it a little bit, but I want to spend some time on it in that transparency, right? Because I'm sure there was an evolution in the idea to arrive at that new mission statement. So what was that like? And why do you feel that's such a distinction to highlight in how the company has evolved? You know, the original mission statement, first of all, it amazes me. So I've been with the company since 1973. I mean, it was before it was a company. We were the climbing equipment company and we started Patagonia that that year. And so for the first 20 years, we had nothing written down. And, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the things that we've done, we had no intention of doing. I sometimes refer to it as stumbling into virtue, you know. You, I love <laughs> you find out you're doing You find <laughs> out you're doing something really bad, and then you figure out, hey, can, is there anything we can do about this? Can we, can we stop it? And, and that, that's how we've, we've, done a, we've done a lot of things. But I remember when we didn't have things written down, everything was a battle. What was the line going to look like? What was a Patagonia product? What rate of growth? You know, we could have become so many different kinds of 
of companies. I don't think the Chenards would still have owned it, but they it would have uh, it, it, the the name could have gone on and and the line become something entirely different than it is. I remember when we adopted the first mission statement, which is build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. We adopted this shortly after we discovered how harmful conventional cotton was environmentally. And I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, you know, and I was, I hate mission statements. You know, when I hear the word strive or the word foster, I go, you know, this is, these are words you can hide behind. <laughs> but I thought this one was okay because I in 91 I thought well I like cause no unnecessary harm because it acknowledges that we do do harm we're extractive it we don't know how to be different but we didn't know enough about our own practices we didn't know enough about how to make clothes because we just signed off on that we we made the purchase orders did the specs designs and handed that off and and then we would see the prototypes and the final products so we weren't reducing the harm. And we certainly weren't an example to any other business. And I, I was kind of nervous about it. But what I saw was rather than become a plaque on the wall, close the door over, the employees took this to heart. And over 27 years, I think we started to actually embody that mission statement. And I remember having lunch with Elon and saying, ah, oh, we got to change the mission statement. This is 2017, 2018. And for the reasons I, I mentioned, one was the environmental crisis was way worse. And two, we had this new North Star. We, in the food business, every new product has to solve a problem. And so he said, yeah, I just want to make the mission statement. We're, we're in business to save our home planet. And again, I thought, oh my God, you know, we're a clothing company. <laughs> this is highly aspirational language. But it, once again, I saw the employees really kind of rise to the occasion and say, okay, well, how does this play out? And to your point, the aspirational statement, you know, people want to be inspired. And oftentimes, yeah. and, and I had the same feeling when I was reading the book, right? I'm often really puzzled as to why are there not more Patagonias, you know, because when you're in the space to be talking about sustainable business or ESG, whatever the, the word is, right? Folks will always like talk about Patagonia, right? Like you, you've been long around long enough to know that, yeah. right? Like when, when people are building yeah. the case study for their deck, Patagonia is going to be right there, right? And then folks will, will inevitably ask, yeah. well, okay, that's awesome for them, but give me like yeah. four or five more. Yeah. And usually people are like struggling and they'll name like a less than stellar company, but might have like a good initiative. You know what I mean? Like, you know, because they're trying to fill in those gaps. And when I read the book and I've followed the company for a long time, I say to myself, here's an organization that owns the shortcomings, recognizes that there's intrinsic harm that's going to happen as a result of doing any of this stuff, but tries to figure out ways to continuously get better. And I think that's a fair place for us all to be. So I, I will look around and say to myself, why won't more organizations just adapt that, right? Like we're not asking for perfection here. We're asking for acknowledgement and improvement.
Well, you know, I think one of the things we did with this in this book, as opposed to 10 years ago, is in the concluding chapter to really, we talked about, this is a chapter called Making a Living in the Anthropocene. And I really agree with you. I feel very strongly for business that, first of all, we have a role to play in solving the problems, uh, the, both the social and the environmental problems, which Pope Francis movingly described as it looks like two crises and it's one it's, it's one crisis with two faces. What business can do that government or NGOs can't do is business can create a self-sustaining activity. You know, we learned this. We have a, a friend named Wes Jackson whose life project has been to restore the Great Plains to hell. He's an agronomist and he was telling us about this perennial wheatgrass that he had developed 20 years ago that extends roots deep into the ground and creates topsoil. Mixes up with the microbes and fungi. We said, well, this is fantastic, Wes. Where can we buy some? And he says, oh, you can't buy Kernza. He says, you can't buy Kernza. We said, why not? He says, no farmer will grow it. We said, why not? He says, a farmer won't plant what they can't sell. And so we partnered with a brewery in Portland, Oregon, to create a, uh, an ale that used uh, Kernza as an ingredient. And we got the first 200 acres of Kernza planted in Minnesota. And now thousands of acres are being planted because cereal companies include it as an ingredient to offset their carbon budget. So this is something, you know, business can, can create a self-sustaining activity. We don't have to raise taxes for it. We don't have to go to rich, NGOs have to go to rich people for donations. So that's a role. But we're only really justifying our social cost and our environmental cost if we are actually addressing the big problems of our time, the existential problems of our time. And if you can't address those problems, if you don't want to, we have a minimal obligation to clean up after ourselves. I love that example in the book because you, you highlight that particular example with the wheatgrass and there's some there's stunning pictures throughout the book. I think there's a picture of like the soil overturned and you can see how deep the roots go. I'm trying to describe it just a little bit off off memory. Though not a beer drinker, I'm more of a whiskey guy myself. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I love that this exists in the world. I have lots of friends who are serious beer drinkers and they're happy as well. And I love these examples. But when we're talking about these existential questions that you raise in the book and we're getting a chance to, to mull over here in this conversation... I'm curious, do you see a way forward where we're making our decisions and they're not through the filter of the marketplace? They're not through the filter of the economics, you know, because I I wonder, and again, this is the armchair philosophy guy, right? Like, I wonder if that in and of itself presents us with limitations, right? If we're only doing the thing that is filtered through the market in some way, is that where we want to land? So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. No, I think it's a really important question. And one of the things I've seen kind of observing our company over the years is, I think even 15 years ago, we were describing those cultural differences. I think even 15 years ago, we could have pointed to some activities that we pursued that made us money and some activities that advanced our purpose. And they weren't always the same. But I think what's happened over time is that we constantly apply constraints to ourselves. You know, a simple example, the woman who organizes trade show booths, 
was saying that, you know, she talks to colleagues in other companies and they just order a new one every two years and then they throw it away. Well, ours have to last 10 years and have to be entirely recycled materials and then they have to be recyclable at the end. And those constraints in the product field force us to innovate. And then we become known for those innovations. And it's not just in the materials, it's also in the processes, how things are made. You know, when we introduce uh, wool, this, uh, we introduce a, a warmware platform of uh, secondhand clothes. What that means is that increasingly our profit, our money-making emerges from our purpose. And I think if you have that confluence, that's, that creates a very strong way for the organization to go forward because it's very difficult if you're looking at, at a compromise between profit and purpose, not to pursue profit, especially if you're not very strong, if your business isn't very strong, you're just trying to defend it. I distinguish business from capitalism in some ways, because I think what we have is a capitalist system that's run not by companies that make things and offer services, but by finance capital. And that finance capital is, is just enormous. There's so much money that's sitting around pursuing the highest possible return, irrespective of what the activity is to generate that return. And that's where I think we get into this massive amount of trouble, because there is no consideration for what the social or the environmental benefit is. But I also think that this has been harmful to business as a whole. The whole Milton Friedman idea of shareholder primacy, it's run business for 50 years, it, it turns out not to work for businesses in the long run, conventional businesses. And you say that, and I agree with it from, a, um, again, the word philosophy comes up, right? <laughs> you know, I, I agree with that from a philosophical perspective. You know, I think Milton Friedman and Hayek and these thinkers that come out of that, you know, popular neoliberal tradition have been a disaster. You know, and I'm being kind when I use the word disaster. And I thought for a moment that I was seeing like, you know, a light on a hill where we were kind of moving away from this, at least as a prevailing cultural perspective. And now I have to admit I'm not so sure. Like, I think we might be moving away from the terminology, but the perspective is still very much alive. And I think about your comment about the extractive nature of finance as a part of chasing the return. And, you know, I, I read a, a post, Mark Andreessen, famous venture capitalist, had a post two weeks ago, maybe, maybe two and a half, about techno-optimism, Right. So I won't put you on the spot in the event you may or may not have read it to comment specifically on, okay, but you did read it. And the language, the ideas, the focus, it takes Milton Friedman in a total other direction, even worse, <laughs> right? I know. He makes him look like Aldo Leopold. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting counterforces to... Uh, sanity emerging in the next decade is this kind of new religion for technology in which AI uh, actually supersedes the experience of biological life. And, and these people are serious about this. Elon Musk wants to put a colonize Mars with a million people by the end of the decade. Well, 
you know, I don't know how many people know that there's an 81 degree temperature differentiation on, on Mars in a 24 hour period and, and you're breathing carbon dioxide, not oxygen. So, so everybody's going to have to suit up. And <laughs> it's inconceivable to me that you would turn away from a damaged but still beautiful Earth with all of its life and go toward this kind of vision. But but I think we're going to have that battle and it, it, people are going to have to figure out for themselves what, what they want. But there's also a big counter movement. You know, in business, I think that the B Corp movement has reached larger companies as well. What I see you know, you you were asking about why aren't there more Patagonias? There aren't a lot of them, but there are, I see more and more, we were talking about people want to be inspired. They also want to bring their whole selves to work. They don't want to leave their intelligence and their values at the door when they walk out. And I see a, a movement in that direction and in unlikely places. I mean, we mentioned in the book, there was a, I was talking to a group of 200 vice presidents at Samsung virtually. And I'm a California hippie. I mean, I'm just going <laughs> 200 vice presidents, you know. And uh, so I'm trying to figure out some kind of commonality. And I say, you know, we have environmental problems, too, because we make these fleece jackets that generate microfiber waste that they can't clean up in municipal water systems. First of all, it goes out from the washing machine into the water, ends up in the stomachs of seabirds. And, and I said, you know, we've tried to work with washing machine companies and they won't touch this. And he said, hey, you guys make washing machines. Yeah, they do. Very futuristic ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So two or three people in that room got an idea and they came up with a new washing machine that filters microfiber waste and a filter that can be an add-on that filters 98% of the waste. They work with us. We, we turn them on to the OceanWise, the NGO we work with in Vancouver, and we help test prototypes. And I remember meeting one engineer who seemed to me to be totally cynical. And I thought, well, this is, I don't know what part of the company he's from, but this is not going to go anywhere. And then it turns out that he, the success of this project really moved him and he really shepherded it and was the champion of that throughout the organization. So now the CEO has decreed that all Samsung washing machines have to have this filter. All the competitors have decreed that they have to, that they have to come up with models, Miele and LG, etc. And there's a pride in that organization. It couldn't be more opposite than Patagonia in terms, you know, they're, they're, they're really based on make, making money and speed of development. But they're proud of this and they want to build on that. So we need more of that going on in business, but it will happen because that's as much a part of human nature as the craziness of saying, well, yeah, let's just pick up stakes, right? <laughs> we, we spoiled our nest. Let's go fly away. Exactly. Which is, it's, <laughs> it's always... It's amazing to me that people are considered smart that have such ideas based in complete lunacy, right? Like we can't, you can't even go underwater for like without incredible sorts of like equipment and, and proper training. And that's on the planet. And you think you're going to pick up and go to another planet? Like, stop it. I love Star Trek as much as the next guy, but dude, that is not happening. <laughs> but I had this question a little later on 
But your story allows me to bring it up now because this this also struck me when I was reading the book. There, there was a story where you highlighted, it, it's in my notes, where you guys did some work. You were at a similar event with Walmart and ended up building out a going concern around standards in the industry that, that kind of persisted and, and lasted much longer. And I think it's safe to say Walmart could very much be complete opposite of a Patagonia for a lot of different reasons, right? But in more progressive circles and people who are concerned about any number of of issues, not just sustainable issues, Walmart is like an easy company to lay like public enemy number one, right? My commentary, not yours, right? And so when I was reading that, what struck me is the ability to find common ground with those who might be perceived as not being in the same space. And I found that to be a, a, a fairly useful metaphor for solving some of life's more intractable issues and something that I, I wish, sometimes I wish I did better myself as a person, right? Like, you know, if I find you misaligned with my values, I tend not to really like, really want to fuck with you for lack of a better word, right? Like I'm not really running out there to kumbaya with the Trump people, (laughs) right? But yet when I was reading the book, there were story after story of finding common ground. And so I wanted to get an opportunity, I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of walk through the practical ways in which you find yourself as an organization learning the lessons of how to to do that, right? Because I think that was one of my biggest takeaways from reading the book, like the necessity of having to do that. We can't only work with people who we agree with mostly, right? We got to find a way to work with those who we don't agree with. So I'm curious to hear your reflections on that. Well, there again, I think we've kind of stumbled into this. And I think there are more of us who are, who are like you. We don't want to reach out to people that we know, don't necessarily respect. But there are a lot of people who come to us. And, and Walmart was, was one of them. They came to us in 2007 and said, we want to learn about sustainability from you guys. And I think at that time, we were like a, I don't know, $400 million company. And they were $400 billion or whatever they are. And we said, we, we laughed, you know, um, and they said, no, we're serious. And I think the lesson that I've learned is when we talk to these folks, the commonality increases because when we're able to prove that we're successful at doing what we do or that we don't hurt the business when we take the measures we make, it shows them that's possible. Whereas before they had no idea what was possible and they, they don't have the sense that they could pursue that risk. Walmart is an interesting case for me because I've seen them go through, I don't know, six or five or six CEOs since we first started dealing with them. Well, we don't have a, we don't have regular conversations with them. We do, but I've talked to different people at Walmart over, over the years, but there's not like a, a regular communication. Yeah, there's no red phone. <laughs> there's no red phone <laughs> to, to, uh, and what I've seen is that They set some really ambitious goals in 2007 and they didn't meet them, but they back off and then they advance. And I think one of the things that I had a conversation with Lorna Davis, who turned Danone North America into a B Corp, and then it was the largest uh, B Corp at the time. She said, you know, once you put this in place, you, you can't walk it back totally. And people retreat a little bit, but then 
there's there's still people in the company who know how to advance it. So I've seen Walmart back off and then go forward. I've seen McDonald's really pay attention to everything in the supply chain except the cows. You know, <laughs> they've done a lot of work on tomatoes and bread and and uh, condiments uh, in order to uh, make it less environmentally harmful. So I, I I'm a, a little bit reluctant to assign white hat some black hats to companies. So someone like Nike is not a particularly interesting as a sustainable quote unquote company has done amazing work in terms of increasing resource efficiency, reducing the actual material that goes into shoes, uh, and yet they perform well. So, you know, I think it's a, if I were a Maoist, I'd say we're in the letter thousand flowers bloom stage that you get. <laughs> you've got to uh, praise the good actions of these organizations and while you continue to criticize what you don't like, including the real structural and labor practices and all that. And I think within the B Corp movement, you're starting to see more companies that are, we, we can say, okay, we, we really respect these guys. We really think they're great. You know, a lot of them are not huge, but big enough. Dr. Bronner's is way ahead of us on the B Corp score and uh, Eileen Fisher is doing a good job. Yeah. And, and, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the, the corporate environment, right? But, you know, corporations exist within the social, economic, cultural, and social confines, political confines of how we've chosen to govern the world, right? And whether it's the capitalism that we have now, it's sort of the techno-feudalism that people like Marcin Andreessen and Elon Musk and others put forward, we're still battling out the way in which we are structuring all of this, right? And there's rich countries and there's poor countries, but one of the things I've I've adapted is thinking about those who are the ultra-consumers versus the under-consumers, right? Because ultimately, that's really where this is falling out, right? There's countries, and I'm sitting in, we're both sitting in one of them, right, that consumes over and above what other countries in the global south even come close to, right? And, you know, the climate change and climate crisis, climate disaster, whatever word one wants to use, terminology one wants to use, is largely felt by those who are under-consuming. And it's only... Even within the U.S. Even within the U.S., right? So... You know, how do we start to pull that apart, right? And, you know, I'm not, if I know if you knew the answer, we wouldn't be on this call right now, right? But in, we'd be out working. Yeah, we'd be out working. But in the, in the sort of thinking through that, right? Because that is a dramatic change and shift in perspective. And I'll, I'll share just one kind of anecdotal story. And then I'll allow you, I'll, I'll let you give your, your space to answer. I remember there was, there was flooding. This might've been two, maybe three years ago, but there was like tremendous flooding in Germany. It, it was a central Europe thing, but there was some real floods that hit Germany in particular. And it was all, all over the news. You know, you see this idyllic German Hamlet and the water just comes rushing down the hill. Right. So everyone remembers this very iconic. But what I remember most is like days later when it's the aftermath, they're they're interviewing some woman, 
you know, some German woman. And she was like, oh my God, this was completely shocking. This is something that I never thought would happen here. This is something that happens somewhere else, right? And, I, you know, I don't know if she said Africa in particular or Asia, but it was someplace else, primarily where dark people live, right? Like that was clear. And that really stuck with me because it felt to me that folks in that consuming world are comfortable with the rushing water until it's where they are, right? But now we're seeing it increasingly where they are. And so that crisis, that ideology seems to be something we really need to confront and take on. And how do we better confront and take it on when the economic systems aren't pushing for less consumerism by and large, right? Well, and and I think your question goes back again to this, the Mark Andreessen comments of, of trying to create a world in, that doesn't touch you in some way and that you don't touch. And I think that this is this process was accelerated in the last 50 years by the globalization of the economy. So, you know, there's no 95% of all apparel sold in the United States is imported. So nobody knows what the labor conditions are, what the, try not to make this too, too much of a diversion, but every time we think that we've really nailed down our environmental impact, we, we find something else that, you know, so we, we figured out a way to make all of our oil-based clothes out of 100% recycled polyester and nylon without losing performance. So great, not using virgin oil. No, not so great because all the mills are fired, fired by coal and they're in places where black and brown people live. And that coal is damaging the health of those communities and it's contributing to global warming. So now we have to look at how do we work and find partners. We, we'll, we can't do it by ourselves to, to start to finance a transition to renewable sources to run those factories. But what you need... I think to sort of battle what you're talking about, this sort of high high consumption culture of being untouchable in some ways, both socially and environmentally, is that you have to restore a sense of place. People have to know where the water comes from. They have to know that there's natural systems underlying the the social and the industrial systems that you're really relying on that for the for the health of your life. And so I think that's connected to the need for more local business. I think it's connected to the need for more local politics, which is difficult because you've got opportunities for corruption and also for unfair majority rule. But these are things I think that can reconnect people to each other, which we've lost a lot of and connect people to the rest of the of the world that we really rely on for our own life it's a pretty kind of a, a basic statement but i think it also applies i mean uh, and i'm not talking just rural life i'm talking urban life as well i mean to green the cities to have you know paint the roofs white plant the gardens you know, New York has done some interesting things over the last d decades that I've been following and closing off Broadway, et cetera, more, more bike lanes. Amsterdam has adopted donut economics as a strategy in which one, one business's waste can become another business's feedstock. So these are the kinds of movements, I think, that can help us create, to realize 
an alternate economy. That's what we need to do. We need more examples that people can say, oh, yeah, this can be done. And not only that, I want to do it. This is what I want to be. So I don't want to move to Mars and live in a high rise and breathe carbon dioxide at, at 200 degrees below zero. I, I want to do this. Yeah, that's a that's a terrible way to go. <laughs> um, and, you know, but when you were giving the example of the wheatgrass story and there's and there's other stories, not just in the book, but just in the natural world. Right. To which we are part of. Right. Like we live here as one part of the natural ecological system of the planet and I'm not a religious person at all. But the movements and of this planet are nothing short of miraculous. And I'm curious from your perspective how that is not the most compelling story versus the story of this this kind of techno-feudalist story, right? Because when I read that essay, I think to myself, I'm not really on Instagram, but I know lots of people who take pictures and stuff like that. I've never seen the person sit there and take a picture of their AI system, right? <laughs> but if I if I go on Instagram or I do a search right now, I see a million sunsets and sunrises. Like I think that's got to be one of the most photographed things in the world. I do it myself. Yeah. Like and it doesn't matter where you're seeing that sunrise. I've seen it on a beach. I've seen it in between skyscrapers. I've seen it in an empty field. It doesn't matter. So people have a deep and abiding love for the natural world, even if they can't name it as such. And I'm curious why that's not the story. Like people do not care about the things that these people think they care about, right? So how do we tell that story? I'm not sure. I think, again, people lose touch with that actual direct experience of there's some connection between them and the sunset that makes you not just want to view it, but want to protect it in some way. I think part of it just goes back to mortality. It, it's a in our minds and our, our imagination for the future and our memories, we're immortal. But we know that in the moment that we're sentient, that we're also not going to be here forever. And I think that the idea of wealth has always been one in which you reduce your vulnerability. Uh, you reduce your ties to the community because, you know, poor communities, everybody's looking out for each other if it's a healthy poor community. So I, I think we have a long history as a species of wanting that kind of untouchability. And we've gone too far in that direction. And we need to go back in the direction of saying, okay, this isn't every man for himself with an assault weapon to hold off everybody else. We are interconnected to other human beings and also to the place we live. And once you start to get some pleasures and some satisfactions and some advances and feel that this is more important than owning 27 cheap <laughs> jackets from, from a fast fashion supplier, you have to have something that replaces that kind of addictive, appetitive pattern that we've gotten into in the wealthier countries and in wealthier communities. Everybody feels like they can money their way away from the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, but then it feels cold, you know. So when I'm in New York, I think that's where we first met in, in Chelsea. And, you know, Hudson Yards has been developed since then. That's really, that's an ice cold environment. 
Yeah. It's funny. People remark on on that all the time. And I'm like, as a native New Yorker, there's very little reason for me to go over there, you know? And I spend a lot of time in our parks, you know, Prospect Park in particular, because I'm in Brooklyn with Central Park. And I wonder about the imagination of the city because we're not doing that anymore, right? Like no one looked at what's now Hudson Yards and said, and you know, I don't, I don't know what was on the table, right? Cause that was a project that lasted 20 years in the making, right? But I don't know, was there like a, a Olmstead who said, hey, maybe this should just be a park, <laughs> right? Like maybe <laughs> this should just yeah. be something that's accessible and free for the community to enjoy that's a natural oasis and not just a series of skyscrapers you know, and, and luxury retail and, you know, all the stuff that they use to to sell a project like that in, while also understanding the history of Central Park that displaced, you know, Black people from that land, right? So there's always that story. The more you dig, the more you uncover, right? Um, but those spaces do feel cult. There was a transformation, though, and I think if Central Park was, you know, they had a lot of carriageways so rich people could, <laughs> you know sort of flirt with each other and but then it became the park of all the people and and now they highlight those communities right you can go to central park and miss that story but it's harder for you to miss that story right to understand that all of this land is all of the united states is displaced land right the indigenous and native communities were here well before us with with advanced societies and, and they were the stewards Right. And we have to now protect that, give back where we can and move forward in, in another way. And you know, I want to start to get us out on this. You know, one of the things I, I find interesting that kind of lives at the, at the Patagonia ethos, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is, you know, who does the outdoors belong to? You know, who gets to take part in what we call the outdoors. And and you cite this in, in the book that the culture of Patagonia looked very homogeneous, right? And and now there's moves to be more inviting. And I, you know, I could speak personal experience. Um, you know, again, native New Yorker, I did not spend a lot of time in the woods, right? But still feel very connected to the Patagonia story, right? Which I think is interesting. Some of the some of the biggest fans that I know of Patagonia are like people like myself, right? They might not be the outdoors people to, you know, climb a mountain and stuff, but they want to enjoy the outdoors where they can. So I'm curious about the evolution of the company in, in that space, right? Being more inviting to the outdoors and, and seeing that within the company and outside the company. Well, I think I think the whole, you know, we're part of a larger outdoor industry. And it's interesting that we were just talking about Central Park and what happened. I mean, I think that the people who in the late 19th century who were climbing were college students from upper middle class families that went to private colleges. And even in California, it was Stanford and Berkeley graduates who were doing the initial the initial climbs until the 50s. And then people like Yvonne Chouinard, my uncle and his friends were, were from lower middle class families who worked at Lockheed and the San Fernando Valley. So you have, I think that a lot of people of, who are not middle class or who are of color wouldn't necessarily feel not that they weren't welcome in the mountains, but they weren't welcomed by the other people who were in the mountains. 
And I think that that's opened up and it's it's something very much that needs to open up. I've also seen it in things like farmers markets that, you know, where I live in California 15 years ago, it was all college educated white folks. Friday, I, I once fought over a tomato. I was uh, in the middle between Julia Child and the mayor of Santa Barbara. And Julia Child won. Yeah, but, not a um, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but now we have people of all kinds at the farmers markets. So in the company, I, I think that there's also George Floyd. The murder of George Floyd had a huge effect on us, as it did on a lot of institutions that, or a lot of organizations that regard themselves as progressive in which you have to say, okay, how, how many, how diverse are we? How, what are the structural constraints that we're not seeing? How do we open up this space so that other people can look and see themselves as part of it? So we've done a lot of that. We've changed a lot, of, especially internally in terms of hiring, advancement, people giving voice to how they feel and what they would like to see within the company and then made approaches in the world. The, the one thing I, I feel kind of strongly about is I think that there's a, there is an experience, and I'm like you, I grew up in urban San Francisco, but actually, to me, that was, I had more connection to nature and the parks there and to the, the wildlands at the north end of the city that I would crawl through a hole in the fence and my friends and I had, you know, this enormous playground, and then I moved to the suburbs, and that was like death. Yeah. There was no... <laughs> so... What I think is important is kind of the, na- the nature of the experience of being outdoors is the combination of in a park, you get a glimpse of it, but you also get more of a glimpse of it if you go to the Adirondacks or you go to, uh, you go to a place that's a little wilder and you get a little far from the road and you feel this immense vulnerability. And at the same time, this, inor- you know, this extraordinary sense of self-reliance and you've got to be awake and your senses sharpen. And, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pave the wilderness experience in some sense. I mean, I'm all for access to more short nature trails for kids or for people who can't walk and all that. But I think that there's a, a category of experience that, that's really good for a number of people to connect to if they can and they want to. So Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm baby steps. You know, I've done the done a few national parks. I've been on some, some trails out there, you know, <laughs> shaking off that city rust. Um, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. It is um, awe-inspiring to get out into the natural world and see your place in it. You know, I want to ask just, just one question. I'm going to get to the final part of the show, which is the drop. And you talk about this in the book, this idea of you were supporting activists and now you become an activist company. You know, clearly we're in an environment where, you know, ESG is is under attack. People are walking back from ESG. You know, um, Larry Fink famously says, I'm not no longer using the term. And you know, I'm not one for terms. I'm one for like the values behind a term. So whether or not he uses ESG or anyone uses ESG or sustainability, I can care less. But the idea behind it is what's important to me and what seems to be under attack, right? It wouldn't matter if people call the ESG, the bad actors don't care, right? So going forward as that activist company, you know, thinking about that next 50 years, you know, where do you see in that related crisis some some opportunities? You guys are, are building on them actively, but 
just more of that like philosophical lens as we as we close out you know headwinds or tailwinds where where are we going <laughs> well i think for us that and this is kind of a i don't know quite how to frame this but i i, I think over the next 10 years our, our non-commercial relationship to the customer is going to become more important I think that the one where I think our secondhand platforms are going to become more important. The shared activism with our employees in the places they live over what they're trying to defend or what they're trying to create. So that's for us. For, for in general, I still see the electrification of the economy as really essential and something it's going to be a source of battle for a while. You can see it every day in the Wall Street journals. Oh, nobody wants to buy electric cars, etc. Though right wingers love solar panels because you get <laughs> you get to be independent. Yeah, get get their um, bunker. <laughs> get their bunker. <laughs> I also see this whole idea of one company's waste becoming another's feedstock. So less reliance on exploitation of resources and more moving those resources around so that we're not mining the earth of what's left in it and community building restoring a sense of place and where where people live those are things that i would hope for in the next 10 or 15 years that i think will be happening i have a, a monthly seminar that I host with uh, graduate students at Yale from the School of Management and also from the Environmental School and the Divinity School. We also get people from law and architecture and talk about what are gonna be the major issues in your working life over the next 50 years. How do you make friends? How do you have allies? And I think we need a lot of that kind of work. People saying, young people saying, no, I'm, I'm not moving to Mars. <laughs> I may buy a Tesla, but I'm not moving to Mars. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and what kind of world do we do we want to live in? What do we want to see more of? What do we not want to see go extinct? Absolutely. That's a great round robin conversation to be a part of, right? Um, you need to bring in all these different folks and, and get their perspective is the only way we're gonna we're gonna move anything forward. So I, I love that that you're doing that. I'm in a few groups like that myself. <laughs> so great conversation with you as always. I, I want to get to the drop and the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with my listeners. I'll go first. I only have one drop and it's a, a band called Say She She. And this came from a really good friend of mine. He put it in our group chat and said, hey guys, you need to listen to this record. It's really cool. The um, album's called Silver and, it, and he was right. As he as he often is when it comes to music. So the band again is called Say She She and the album is called Silver. I believe it's their debut album, but um I was listening to it in the car the other day and it's a really, really strong record, one that I'm gonna be going back to. So I wanted to put that as my drop. So you're up. What do you what what do you got with us today? You've already shared so much, but give us something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go the opposite direction. Okay. And uh uh, invite people to walk out. My friend John Fullerton is a reformed investment banker. He helped develop uh, the derivatives business for Morgan Stanley in the 80s and then had a dark night of the soul. And his website is capitalinstitute.org. And he's written four important papers, I think, on what he calls regenerative capitalism, in which he really identifies 
Going back to uh, Jane Jacobs and, and also going back to some of the ideas of, of holism, what makes a system work? What makes a living system work? And when he compares that to our financial system, he says we're in a world of hurt because living systems have abundance at the edges. That's where things change. They have a, a flow of energy. It's uh, not bottled up there. He has eight different principles that he talks about. So I would just open up the listeners to to invite them to look at that website because I think he's he's doing some pretty interesting work. Yeah, I've, I've read quite a few of his things. I've been familiar with his work for quite a while. I think we actually talked about him a little bit in one of our earlier conversations. So definitely, I think someone that listeners should be aware of to the extent they might not already be and and, and check out his work. That's an awesome drop. Um, so you can you can read some John Furlerton and also listen to an album. Um, Absolutely. And go on a walk, right? Get out. And go on a walk. Get out yeah. into the world and, and enjoy this, especially as we get into the fall and winter season. Doesn't mean our outdoor activity needs to shift, right? Just need to dress warmer, depending on where you are in the world. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, it, exactly right. But it, it's amazing, you know, with the lower light, you can feel cabin fever. You walk outside and that cabin fever goes away. So. Yeah, especially when that cold breeze hits you here in New York. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it will wake so. you up with a quickness. Um, <laughs> Vincent, I, I can't I can't thank you enough for, for joining me on the show, sharing your insights, sharing the book. Big fan of, of what you guys are doing and, and want to see you around for the next 50 years. I'll be 101 then, so... Yeah, well, I'll be older than that. You'll be older than that, but we we can still have this conversation. <laughs> right. we'll, we'll figure All it right. out together. <laughs> well, it's great talking to you again. We should do it more often. It was really, really a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely, we'll make we'll make a commitment to that in 2024. So, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.